Welcome to the TF Blockchain Podcast, where we interview blockchain, Bitcoin, and cryptocurrency innovators actively building, growing, and investing in this emerging technology. I'm your host and founder of TF Blockchain, Jonathan G. Blanco. TF Blockchain hosts quarterly conferences and monthly events live recorded for this podcast. Our current chapters are located in Seattle, Portland, Vancouver, San Francisco, Austin, San Antonio, and Dallas. Our upcoming conferences will be TF5 in Seattle on March 19, 2020, and TF6 in Austin on June 4, 2020. To get involved with TF Blockchain, participate in future TF conferences, attend a chapter in your area, or to start a new chapter, please visit tfblock.io. Hey, I want to share a special promo with you from our friends over at CoinMine so you can get your very own CoinMine 1 and mine cryptocurrency from your house in the simplest way possible. I have one, I love it, and I want to make sure you can get one too. So visit coinmine.com slash tfblock and use discount code tfblock to get $50 off. I want to give a huge thank you to our media sponsor, Stably, for handling the audio and video for TF4. Stably is an asset-backed stablecoin on the blockchain. It's faster, cheaper, secured, and borderless. You can learn more about Stably at stably.io. This episode is a special live recording from TF4, our most recent sold-out TF Blockchain conference held on November 14, 2019 in Seattle at the Triple Door. This episode features two of our lightning talks from TF4. You'll hear from Eric Jansen as he discusses the history of money and how it relates to the digital world of cryptocurrency. And you'll also hear from Nahar Modi of Amazon as he discusses enterprise blockchain implementations at AWS. Our TF4 audience really enjoyed these lightning talks, and I hope you do as well. because he uh, figured I'd do something a little crazy, uh, and he's right. So if you'll just move to the next slide and then hand me the clicker. There we go. Thank you. So uh, as all stories start, this one started in a bar. Um, Here I'm with a friend whose ID needs to be hidden, who's uh, paying off a debt. Uh, If you've never seen $50,000 worth of gold, that's what $50,000 worth of gold looks like. And Jonathan said, Eric, this is pretty silly to be sitting in a bar with this kind of coins. You must know something about coins. And I begin to tell him something, and he says, well, could you turn that into a pitch? And I said, well, I think I probably could. There are a lot of lessons about coins, uh, about money, that uh, I've learned in working for U.S. Treasury for a while. And I'm not going to say anything I shouldn't, but there might be some interesting hints in here. So if you look up money, you get this. It's got to have utility, be durable scarce, and then you get these yellow things as a result, which is the lubrication of economies, blah, 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 blah. And that's supposedly the rules of money, but that's not the real rules. Here are the real rules. Turns out, back in the day, before Christ, these are two German or either Grecian coins. You see, in the one on the left, you see obviously they're trying to tag onto mythology. And the one on the right, the king has figured out that if he puts his face on the money, then uh, the other kings want it, and everybody realizes who's king. So precious metals, silver in particular, although gold, became the coin of the realm in uh, Europe and uh, Asia Minor. Um, and so the rules of coins became they got to be indestructible. Rare, 
and portable really helps. But most of all, it's the golden rule. He who has the gold sets the rules. And silver is well applied. So even before Christ was born, these were the rules of money. Okay, I'm going to fast forward 1,800 years. Turns out the two largest silver deposits really found to this point in time were in what's today Germany and what's now South America. We all know that story. And so by 1545, the technology had not improved a lot in the, the new uh, world, but in Germany, um, obviously, they had figured out how to make dyes, and there were considerable uh, efforts to make coins recognizable. I love this guy's underbite. King Leopold was uh, really famous for it. So the German Thaler actually became the predecessor to the word dollar. If you didn't know that, our dollar comes from Germany. So the next rule comes along, trust the king. You see his picture, he likes that, you'll like that too. And you can trust the coins if his face is on the money. So let's keep going to colonial America. By that time, the Spanish had hoarded most of the world's gold, or silver rather, and was silver rich. So was England for that matter. And if you were alive in 1776, you were probably doing commerce with this coin. This is the Spanish silver eight real coin called the mill dollar, or when cut into pizza-shaped slices called pieces of eight. There weren't any US coins. There weren't even any British coins because they didn't like King George. So they ran the colonies on Spanish coins primarily. So that rule says, not only are you supposed to trust the king, but you know, if you know the size and the weight and the purity, that matters a lot. So we add to the list of the real lessons of money. All right, so the world lives on the silver standard pretty much. Um, and then in 1704, Queen Anne actually, it wasn't a king, it was a queen, hired this guy. Now we know this guy, uh, Isaac Newton, because he's the one that brought us the apple and gravity and all that. Turns out he was also an alchemist. And the British monarchy said, we need more gold, find some. Well, he tried and he couldn't make gold from lead. So what he ended up doing was he solved this with information. He decided he could figure out the gold-silver ratio. Now, it turns out the rest of this pitch is going to hinge on this man, this moment, this realization. Because it turns out... The next rule of money is empires really need standards. And in this case, they needed a standard of how much gold was equal to how much silver. And Isaac Newton looked back in history and said, that ratio is 15.5. Now that wouldn't be enough, except the Bank of England, under the auspices of the queen said, we therefore will give you one ounce of gold if you bring us 15 and a half ounces of silver. So it was not only the standard, but the enforceability of the standard, which quite frankly changes the world. Now, the left chart is gold, the right chart is silver. The top chart is the actual action of, of, of gold over time, up, up, up. The line above it is a CPI deflator. So think of it as converting uh, through inflation the real cost of gold over time. It's actually fairly flat, which you wouldn't believe, but the volatility is crazy. Silver, the same thing. Relatively flat, silver is an industrial metal, not so much a precious metal. But the point is, 
Isaac Newton said, neither of these charts are important. What's important is the ratio. And the ratio looks like that. This is the ratio back 700 years. Now, Newton hits right about here, and he says that's 15.5. And looking back, he did his best to get it right, and it looks like he pretty much did. Each one of these blips represents a major silver discovery, and it disrupts the world. Going forward, it's the same basic story. You'll find that uh, right around here was, was, uh, was, was gold in America. And as you see today, if you were to do that ratio at this moment, you'd find it's about 86. So it turns out this is really important, not as a ratio, but as an enforceable trading mechanism. So we expanded basically the world's reserves from whatever amount of gold there was to gold and all of the silver. This turns out to be a really handy thing, incredibly problematic. So empires really need stable relative standards because the fact is there's only so much gold. Economies want to grow. And so unless you want the price of gold to go to the moon and having to make tinier and tinier and tinier and tinier coins, you can't base a world on a finite resource. All right, so let's go to the United States experience. When the U.S. gets started, you've got the Spanish mill dollar, but there's really not many other coins. And so an entire uh, uh, collection of colonial copper coins develop, and colonies make them. They're full of images that the colonists recognize, a plow, some inspirational eye that's looking over your shoulder, the concept of a female overseer, which becomes Lady Liberty on coins. And this it happens to be a 1652 silver shilling from Massachusetts, actually quite a famous one. All right, so the next rule, nature abhors, so do economies, a vacuum. Meaning, when there isn't money but there's business to be done, money will appear. Sound familiar? All right, so the next 60 years is kind of a mess, quite honestly, between Spanish currency, the first US coins were not struck until the 1790s when Jefferson and Hamilton had their famous smackdown as to how we're going to define this. Are we gonna use shillings and pounds or are we gonna use something different? Turns out Hamilton won. They all admitted Jefferson was the smartest guy in the room, but they went with Hamilton's idea. And you have dimes, pennies, and dollars, and a few other in between. But importantly, the US went to the silver standard because we didn't have much gold. So here we go. The next uh, 60 years is a mess. From 1790 to 1850, we go through, we go through uh, your standard garden variety depressions. We go through gold's worth more than silver. Oh, and by the way, you know this story we were told in school about how the boats went around the rule and got spices from the east and came back? It's total horseshit. They actually were silver and gold arbitragers who had relatively empty boats. Silver and gold's relatively heavy. Good ballast, by the way. And they would bring things back. But they were fundamentally going around the world to arbitrage silver and gold. Every time silver was found, silver would go down, gold would go up. The gold ratio would react. They'd move silver or gold, depending on where they wanted to be. For local markets, it would pay more. They were just profiteers. Spices, not so much. So what happens in the next 60 years, um, this silver-gold exchange just sucks gold or sucks silver out of every market that it exists, and the entire world suffers as the reserve metals of countries go away. 
they move, they lose control. We tried to create a national bank so that the government didn't suffer, only the banks would, we couldn't do it. We tried it twice, Andrew Jackson tried it. We ended up with shortages of gold, with shortages of silver, shortages of, co of coins, and then California. Oh my God, this really enriched the US, totally crazed the gold-silver ratio worldwide, and finally we were able to get a bank going because we finally had enough gold to fund it. U.S. government, though, here's the new lesson. They said, if you're doing business with us, we will not take checks, we will not take barter, we will not take anybody's gold, only ours, gold or silver. Thank you very much. So we get the next lesson. All right, so in the Civil War, this is actually the closest thing that we have today. And that, I'm not saying that geopolitically, I'm saying that monetarily. And the reason is, coins all disappeared. The metal was used for guns, the metal was hoarded, coins disappeared. So you suddenly had coins pop up everywhere again. There's no gold anywhere to be found in public. In wartime, everybody puts everything in a hole in their backyard. The Confederate States had no coins. They, they took over the U.S. Mint in New Orleans and copied the coins of the North. They used stamps as coins. It was that critical, and the world went to barter. Here's a really cool artifact for a... a a cocktail conversation. The word in God we trust, 1862. A first coin appeared in 1864. Cultural collapse. Who are we going to believe in this world? The North wins. We put in God we trust on the coins for the first time. And most importantly, institutional interests replace the king's interests. So here we have here we have a situation where it's no longer the kings have the gold, it's the government. So here's our rule list at this point in history. Finally, democracy takes over from kings and we have governments, we have capitalists, and we have stable money. At least that's the government's goal. All right, so what happens after the Civil War? Well, you know, anybody go to University of Pennsylvania Wharton School? I see some hands. You know who it's named after? Joe Wharton, the nickel king. He owned the nickel mining industry, and that's why we have a nickel. Because he lobbied the government to stop making silver half dimes and buy his nickel. The same thing happened in the, in the silver uh, area. The silver miners uh, had so much silver coming out of the Comstock load in California that they absolutely crunched the silver-gold ratio and the government had to make silver dollars until they literally were coming out of the stores. All right, so moving through the early, uh, here are the rules, okay? Here are the rules. At the end of the day, the new one is, if you don't have dollars, they come to your door with a gun. All right, so I'm going to fast forward this and move through to where we are. To, oh, this is great, commemorative coins. The Queen's on the back, ACDC's on the front. Can you believe it? Talk about devaluation. That actually, those are coins from Australia today. So here we are today. Let's take a look at this relative to crypto. Let's just hit the list. What have we got? Indestructible? Sounds like security. Portable? Hell yes. Governments can't afford the golden rule. There simply isn't enough gold. Is there enough crypto? Some people say not, you know, some people say 20-some million is enough. I say history's proven it otherwise. Trust the capitalists? Yeah, we kind of have to, don't we? But Libra isn't working because the government's basically telling the world, you want to be part of Libra? 
Here are the new rules coming. You ever wonder why those credit card companies walked away? Finally, nature will fill this vacuum. Right now we're filling it with crypto. But the question is, as long as you gotta pay US dollars, is cryptocurrency or is it merely the, 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 the carrier of a transaction? I guess we'll have to wait and see. So what do you think now? Welcome to R. Modi from uh, AWS. Hi, everyone. Um, for those who don't know me, my name is Nihar Modi. I actually lead product management for Amazon Managed Blockchain. Super excited to be here, and thanks, Jonathan, for, for the opportunity. All right, let's see if this thing's going to clock through. So, I don't know if anybody here has heard of Amazon through the start. <laughs> uh, you can buy things online. Yeah. They deliver. Uh, pretty easy. Yeah. yeah. Pretty seamless experience for the most part. Small operation. Yeah. I, I, yeah. I always joke that uh, my wife would probably choose Amazon Prime over me if she had to. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, I, I, a lot of you probably would do the same thing and you know it. Come on. <laughs> Building up. There you go. Cool. Awesome. So we just did that. Um, so we're going to discuss some nice use cases today. I've heard some cool ones come up already. But before we do that, I want to kind of go over what the whole discovery process was, right? It, it wasn't easy for Amazon to kind of get into the space, and I want to have some uh, information that I can share over here. So you know, what really got us excited, right? Like, uh, I think this is 2016, 2017, when we started seeing a bunch of, uh, you know, hype in, in the space, right? Um, there was uh, this one article that came up that blockchain was gonna be the next thing for uh, supply chain management. You know, I heard that use case was just brought up. Uh, people were calling it the backbone for supply chain 2.0. Right, um, there's stuff in the healthcare industry, right? Like people are saying that healthcare is gonna change as we know it and that's gonna be because of blockchain. Um, and also there were other use cases that came about in terms of uh, the FSI space, right? Like uh, that was going through some radical changes and blockchain was gonna drive some of it. So, you know, once we saw this, we, we got excited, at least I got excited. I'm like, hey, you know, we should put some sort of a business proposal. So these are the six page documents that you guys read about in, in the press that we put together. Right, so we started working backwards, right? Um, that's not supposed to happen, but it did. Um, so the first use case, you know, we came across a bunch of companies that still wanted that centralized trust. You know, they wanted to be that central authority to kind of have all the data within themselves, right? So the classic use case, you go to a DMV, you know, they have records of all the vehicles in the state, but they actually hold all that information. And, and for this use case, you know, we just recently GA'd a product. It's called a QLDB quantum ledger database. Uh, we won't talk about that because that use case is not exciting for me personally. Um, the next one that got us interested was, uh, you know, customers that essentially told us that they wanted to transact in a more decentralized way, 
right? Um, so the classic use cases that came up was com complicated supply chains where you know you have the suppliers, you've got the wholesalers, you've got the retailers, and they all wanted to have like one single view of the data, right? And uh, they also wanted to transact within themselves, and blockchain was a classic uh, technology that could facilitate that. You know, the other one was financial institutions, right? So we, we talked to a bunch of financial institutions. They were all interested in running peer-to-peer -peer transactions, P2P payments, and uh, that's where we thought like blockchain could be super interesting. And there's a bunch of other ones where, you know, there was mortgage lenders and retail companies that also popped up in the use cases, right? So what are the main complexities of a multi-party business, right? Uh, so A, we basically found out that they all wanted to transact within themselves, right? They wanted to verify these transactions independently. Um, they all wanted one current single view of the data, and this was huge, right? Can't tell you, like, everyone that we talked to, they were like, hey, you know, if we all looked at the same data, life would be so easy, and uh, today they don't have that. Um, and they all wanted to make sure that all of this information is tamper-proof, right? Like, a lot of times, uh, I, I think someone just mentioned here that trust is a big thing. You know, I, I second that. Um, and how are they doing this today? Again, you know, like, the, the solution was still like, okay, let's have one central authority that stores the data and have that uh, share across. Um, and a lot of other use cases, uh, customers will then have these uh, super expensive escrow services that just didn't make any sense. Like, you know, I'm not sure, like, when you go to buy a house, what does the escrow company do holding, you know, tens of thousands of dollars for, like, a month, right? So, you know, so what were the existing challenges that customers told us? So everyone were on every, all customers that we talked to were mostly aligned that they wanted blockchain, but, like, they all said that, A, they couldn't set up any framework on their own. Like most enterprise customers that we go to, like no matter how sophisticated they were, they were like, hey, this is extremely complicated. I don't have the bandwidth to go up and read like Ethereum specs or Hyperledger Fabric specs. Like not going to do it, right? Um, a lot of companies that ran some POCs in their DIY network kind of a way, they said it's hard to scale, right? Like you kind of bring in one member, fine. Everything works fine, right? And, then, and the moment you start adding the second member in that whole network, it just falls apart, right? So that was a big problem for a lot of customers. It's also complicated to manage, right? Uh, it's, it's not easy, right? Like we, we kind of live it and breathe it now every day and there's still so many problems and just from a customer perspective, uh, give you an example, we talked to a massive enterprise uh, company in California and they, were, they spent a full year trying to set up a blockchain network and they weren't successful, they got frustrated you know, when we launched Managed Blockchain, they put an intern on that project, and the intern was able to kind of come with like a full end-to-end -end application in less than a month, and the CTO was just like super happy. They're like, oh, this is great, right? Like, can we put petabytes of data on this blockchain network? And I'm like, we're not there yet, but you know, that's the, that's the plan. Um, so, you know, the last thing I want to bring out, is it's expensive, right? Like a lot of companies, like especially the ones that have big pockets will, uh, you know, hire some expensive consulting companies to help them uh, build their blockchain networks, and uh, it's, it's not cheap, right? All right, so we're gonna go to customer stories. This is my favorite piece. All that was just like trying to convince uh, Amazon folks that, hey, we should invest in blockchain, right? So, 
you know, I, I love this chart. I don't know why that thing's like that. But, like, you know, since we launched, it's been around five months. Like, we went GA sometime in April. And we're just seeing, like, a ton of interest, like, from companies all across in different verticals, right? Uh, supply chain is definitely one of the flagship US, uh, use cases that is coming up. And it's all across the board, right? Like, automotive uh, parts suppliers want to do uh, participate in these networks. Uh, airline industries, people want to participate in some networks. Um, healthcare industries are now popping up and like they're interested in sharing this data across uh, different healthcare networks. Um, so it's, it's literally all over the place and I kid you not, I, I literally talk to like five or six customers on a daily basis and we're just discussing use case and it's just, we're basically trying to make sure that we can, uh, you know, kind of address the inbound request that is coming in because it just appears that everyone wants to do blockchain but they're just, like there's so many hurdles to kind of, uh, use this technology and hence they want to use the platform. All right, oh, that one's clean, that's good. Uh, so the first use case, and, I, and this is really, uh, I would say dear to my heart, right? Uh, Nestle came to us, um, I forget what time frame, like probably earlier this year, and they, they basically came up with a problem. They're like, hey, you know, we wanted to add more transparency for our end consumers because Nestle is a massive company, right? Like they source products from so many different regions and like, they, I kid you not, they have the most complicated supply chain that I've seen. And uh, they basically wanted to pass some of that information to the end consumers, right? Um, so they, they, they kind of had an idea that blockchain can help them do that. Uh, they just didn't know how to implement any of it, right? And this is, we're talking of Nestle, you know, like they have some of the best developers and like they have all the infrastructure that is required. So um, we ended up uh, building a supply chain uh, solution for Nestle where they were basically tracking single origin coffee from farmers in Australia all the way across the world, right? And that supply chain, from what I can recall, goes to three different continents before it gets to the end consumers. And, and, and really the use case that they've built, uh, and this is live by the way, you can go and buy this bag of coffee today and it comes up with a QR code. You basically scan that using your iPhone and it tells you where that coffee was grown, like you know all the different places that it's been to. Uh, you can actually download uh, certification reports. You can actually click the image icon where it tells you like the machine that actually ground all the coffee and whatnot. So it, it's super sophisticated and, uh, and Nestle, I'm not sure why they picked this use case, but I just felt like it was super complicated to begin with. Like, you know, coffee supply chain, after I went through this exercise, I, I just, like, I appreciate drinking coffee more now, right? Uh, and it's, um, it's, it's just, it, it was amazing. And, and their plans are just grand. They basically want to put every Nestle product on this blockchain, right? And they're now adding, like, way more wholesalers, way more suppliers that are participating in this, uh, network so that everyone can look at the same data at all times, right? So, next one, uh, Sony Music, right? Uh, again, super exciting use case. They're essentially uh, solving the problem that this industry has faced for decades, plagiarism, right? And again, like, you know, someone mentioned, like, you know, what, what, how do you talk to customers? It's, you've got to nail down the problem. Right, like if there's no problem, like it's basically a 
technology that's looking for a solution. And in this case, Sony just comes up like, hey, you know, we want to solve this problem of plagiarism. It costs us billions of dollars. Artists are not really uh, trusting the production houses anymore because they, you know, they don't really get their dues. And, and Sony basically built a platform using Amazon Managed Blockchain where um, you know, artists can come in, they can basically upload all their work, like jingles and other forms of tunes that they probably come up with, and they basically get like a record saying that, hey, this is my work, and I, was up I uploaded this in so-and-so timestamp. Right? And it's now growing where artists are actually coming in, putting all their work, and when that work is being used in other places, they actually get payments and royalties for it. Right? And it basically helps them solve this whole plagiarism use case because uh, you know, apparently it's an industry-wide problem. Right? And now the next step is to start adding more different production houses. SGX, right? this is a complicated one, uh, which probably require a full hour, but uh, Singapore Exchange, and they basically wanted to settle tokenized assets with MASS, which is uh, the monetary authority of Singapore, it's equivalent to being the central bank. And uh, the goal here was to bring more liquidity to the market where all the banks have the same data, that they're looking at the same ETFs that have been settled, they're looking at the same securities that are settled. And um, you know, Singapore Exchange was leading the charge, it's a super exciting use case. Um, oh, sorry. Last one, legal in general, right? So this is one of UK's largest insurance company and they ended up building a pension risk transfer platform and managed blockchain. And you know, this, I learned this use case uh, very recently, but essentially insurance companies will also take insurance on their risk, and it's a pretty complicated network. It's basically a network of a bunch of insurance companies coming together where they're basically exchanging uh, risks and managing risks, and uh, the problem is these pensions can go on for 50 years, and no one really knows what the single source of data is, right? And now they want to do that over blockchain. So super excited about this. Uh, recently talked to an exec at LNG, and they said that your system should be up and running for more than 100 years. That kind of like, I skipped a heartbeat when I heard that. So, you know, here are some of our other customers, right? Like we've got Guardian, Workday is doing a lot of cool stuff. Uh, Verizon is uh, doing a bunch of stuff around tracking stuff on a blockchain. So like I would say I'm living in excited times right now um, and, and absolutely loving this, right? Cool. Did I wrap it on my time? Do you guys have any questions? Ah, this is a tough one. But I want all of you guys to think of a feature and uh, tell me what is it that you want me to build over the next quarter. <laughs> Sounds like you want people to do your job for you. <laughs> awesome, awesome. Thank you for listening to the TF Blockchain Podcast. Please help us continue to spread blockchain, Bitcoin, and crypto awareness by sharing this podcast, attending our events, following us on social, and rating and reviewing this podcast by clicking all the stars on our homepage so we can be more accessible across Apple, Spotify, and all podcast platforms. Thank you for your support. Keep learning, keep growing, and keep building. The views and opinions expressed at TF Blockchain events and podcasts are solely those of the ones presenting and do not necessarily reflect the positions or opinions of TF Blockchain. TF Blockchain is not responsible for the opinions or content of its guests and does not endorse any particular company or currency. 
This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be used to make investment decisions.